Welcome to the Dairy to Growth podcast. This is Guilherme. I am the communications coordinator of Dairy to Growth, and I'm very excited to learn more about calf nutrition and management during this episode. So I would like to introduce our first guest, Dr. Mike Steele. Uh, Mike, thank you very much for accepting our invitation, and I'm very happy to record this episode with you. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it, Guilherme. Yeah, that's great. So before we start, Mike, um, for those that are not familiar with Derek Guelph, uh, Derek Guelph is a network of researchers at the University of Guelph, and its mission is to improve the level of research in dairy science. Uh, but we're here today to learn more about Dr. Steele's research. So Dr. Michael Steele is a faculty in the Department of Animal Bioscience of the University of Guelph. Um, his research is broad and very diverse, including topics like colostrum and immunity of young calves, milk nutritional plants and milk replacers, and also winning strategies. Uh, so Mike, I know that you have some projects with cows and we will talk, we will talk about it, but I was wondering, why did you decide to focus on dairy calves? Yeah, that's a great question, Guilherme, because I used to study dairy cows during my PhD, which I did here at the University of Guelph. I studied ruminal acidosis in the transition period, and I thought I was going to start my career on dairy cows, especially this transition period. But I started uh, my academic career at the University of Alberta, and I was fortunate enough to have an NSERC industrial research chair. So I had private partners with NSERC and I could do research in one area for five years. And I looked around Canada and I saw about 10 other professors studying ruminal acidosis at the time. And I thought, wow, I want to do something that no one else is doing. So I thought, okay, I, I see a lot of really great calf research at UBC right now, uh, mainly in the behavior and, and feeding behavior side and also animal welfare, but I thought, wow, there's a real great opportunity in Canada to do research related to dairy calf nutrition and physiology. So, so a lot of people thought, what are you doing, Mike? I'm not sure about this one, but I decided, yeah, it was a good move to switch to calves, not 100%, but it's been the majority of my research program. And it just so happens, Guilherme, at the same time, um, my wife and I, we decided to have children, and I was just blown away by such the dramatic contrast between how we rear children, I'm saying rearing uh, children, and how we rear a calf. It's totally different, and the science is totally different, and I really wanted to explore some of those concepts. So it, uh, an accumulation of different, different reasons uh, led me to calves, and I'm really happy I, I made that decision. That's great, Mike. That's very interesting, actually. So I know that you have a huge research team and like several partnerships. Is that right? Yes, I'm really fortunate. Uh, I used to work in industry before I became an academic. So I, I really value what industry can do in, in especially in the, the world of dairy. So I, I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity to become an academic and partner with a lot of these private companies with NSERC grants. So that's what I've been doing a lot of since I started uh, as in academia about nine years ago. So really fortunate to have partners that I actually worked with in many cases before I was an academic. So we established trust 
And now uh, it's been working out really well, especially with NSERC grants. That's great. Um, so, okay, I, I think, Mike, that makes sense. We start the conversation with the topic colostrum. So why this very first secretion produced right after calving is so important? Well, it's full of incredible bioactives that can improve the health, uh, metabolism and productivity of that calf, not just in the first weeks of life, but there's some evidence that even the first meal in life can have a long-term impact on that animal. So it could potentially affect survivability or future production as well. So that's why I think studying colostrum uh, is really important from an industrial standpoint. But in addition, it's a fascinating biofluid that's full of bioactives that we're still discovering. So there's a lot of even pure basic science uh, involved with colostrum. So, so that's uh, collectively some of the reasons why we study colostrum in our lab. Nice, that's interesting. Um, and I learned that you have a whole research grant just about colostrum. Is that correct? Uh, I, yeah. I would like to know who else is involved uh, in these projects? Yeah, first and foremost uh, was the Saskatoon Colostrum Company. So one of my first grants as an academic came from the Saskatoon Colostrum Company, which pools colostrum from around the world and dries it. And uh, very fortunate to work with them because they wanted to know more applications for their products as well. They just wanted to learn more basic research on what are the other bioactives within colostrum. So I partnered with them and, I, and it's actually, it went from small grants to now we have a five-year grant. Uh, in addition to Saskatoon, uh, we're working with Alanco Animal Health as well as Land Lakes in that particular project. But there's many different focuses there and it, it's great to do research with partners that you really trust. You could be creative over five years, but we're focusing on what are the prepartum factors that influence colostrum quality? Also, what are all the other bioactives within colostrum and what do they do to the calf? And in addition, is there other applications for colostrum? Can we feed it for longer? Can we feed it during diarrhea or weeding? Uh, these are some of the other things that we're also investigating in this five-year uh, research program directly related to colostrum. Well, yeah, that's very interesting, Mike. Um, and you mentioned a little uh, something about the composition of the colostrum. So I was wondering, uh, well, we know that the quality of the colostrum matters, right? So how farmers can measure the quality of the colostrum right now? Yeah, so I think it's as, as easy as, you know, taking a sample of colostrum and getting a, a what we call a, a BRICS reading or a serum, uh, or sorry, a total protein uh, reading on that and as doing a calculation to assess how much IgG is within the colostrum. So I think with maternal colostrum or the colostrum from a dam, that's totally fine to use. And you can actually collect the serum from the calf between 24 hours after colostrum and maybe 72 hours of colostrum and assess the serum total protein. Uh, of what, And that's a good assessment of how much of these immunoglobulins actually end up in circulation in that calf. Uh, but what we found out recently that we just published in the Journal of Dairy Science, if you're using uh, other products like colostrum replacers, which are quite common, at least here in Canada, you really shouldn't be using serum total protein. You should really assess uh, the quantification of the IgG either in that powder or in circulation using other techniques like immunodiffusion. So 
in short, there's ways that we can assess this on farm that are quite valuable, but we need to make sure that we're using maternal colostrum to do so. And if we're not, uh, we need to look at other ways of assessing this on farm. Yes, great. And I have a follow follow up question for you. So what else is important in the composition of the colostrum? I think you mentioned something about it as well. So is there any other uh, molecules that yeah, that matters as well? Yeah, Guilherme, there's hundreds of these molecules within colostrum that we're still uncovering right now. So our lab uh, recently did a series of studies related to insulin. So insulin's really high in colostrum. We don't really know why. Same with other growth hormones. Uh, so we were trying to figure out what is this doing to the animal? Is it affecting IgG absorption, which we found out that it's not. However, it did affect gastrointestinal development. So that's just one example, but there's fatty acids. The fatty acid profile in colostrum is completely different from, let's say, transition milk or a whole milk. So there's got to be a reason why there's specific fatty acids within colostrum. It's really high in omega-6, as well as polyunsaturated fatty acids, really low in short-chain fatty acids. So there's this unique profile. We don't really understand it at this point. Um, there's also other carbohydrates like oligosaccharides within colostrum. So these are really important because of the prebiotics that the cow is naturally producing for that offspring in order to establish a really healthy gut microbiota. And uh, I think we should be paying close attention to that because we all know in the calf world, one of the biggest challenges is digestive diseases and disorders. So if we have a prebiotic that the cow is naturally producing in that first, second, third, fourth milking, we should be trying to deliver that and uh, learning more about that. So there's many different peptides, there's many different fatty acids and many different carbohydrates that we are now aware of that are in, in colostrum, but we really don't know what they're doing to the calf. And that's uh, some of the stuff that we're working on within this grant that we recently received. Okay, Mike, yeah. Uh, that's very interesting. And I'm looking forward to learn more about uh, the next steps of your project uh, on colostrum composition. Thank you for sharing all this information with us. Uh, I have another question. So how much colostrum and for how long farmers should be feeding young calves? Yeah, so some of the old recommendations were looking at grams of immunoglobulins being fed. And there were some numbers even 10 years ago at 150 grams, now 200 grams of IgG being delivered in the first meals in the first 12 hours of life is really the guideline. Another way to look at that is 10% or 12% of birth body weight in high quality colostrum. So a 40 kilogram calf would be receiving minimum of four liters of really high quality colostrum. Now, I think that's a step in the right direction how we're increasing, but based on some of our recent results, we think calves uh, should be consuming even double uh, what our current recommendations are. So I think that we should be striving not just for 200 grams of IgG in the first 12 hours, but even push it harder to go to 300. We also have some farms that are at 400 grams of IgG and having incredible results with that, uh, not just in animal health, but just looking at the amount of IgG that's in circulation in these animals in the first week of life. Some of the highest readings I've ever seen on commercial farms. And really the cow produces a lot of these immunoglobulins and we have done, I don't like to 
to mention this on a Dairy at Guelph podcast, Guilherme, but we have done some beef work. Okay. Uh, we just do it. We just do the beef work to learn about the dairy cow, just to be very clear. <laughs> We're not doing it because uh, we love beef cows. We do it to learn <laughs> about the dairy cow. But That's it's right. fascinating because their immunoglobulin levels are double in colostrum and also in circulation in those calves, it's double compared to a Holstein. And I think it's because we're they're being delivered uh, quantities close to 500 grams of immunoglobulins. And here we are in the dairy industry at 150. Now we're talking 200. But in reality, if the calf was suckling from the dam, it would be far greater than what we're delivering. So I really challenge some of these recommendations. And I think that we should be increasing them dramatically in the future. Okay. That's very interesting. Thank you, Mike. Um, so we talked a little bit about the importance of colostrum. Uh, we touched on composition of uh, of colostrum, and also uh, we talked about the quality or how long we need to feed calves. Uh, I have another question now, Mike. So what about um, the transition to whole milk, and 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 also what about the use of replacers? Yes. Yeah, so we talk about transitions all the time in the dairy industry, the transition cow, the transition during weaning, but I think there's also a transition in the first days of life. So I think a cow, you know, gives birth, we deliver this colostrum to this calf as soon as possible, we try to deliver as much as we can, but really what was happening in the industry is that we had this quick transition to a whole milk or a milk replacer. And when you look at what the cow naturally delivers to the calf, it's, it is a transition over several days. The bioactive molecules are still there, even in, in lower concentrations, but they are still there, uh, the ones that are in colostrum, even in the second, third, fourth milking. If you look at IGF-1 or even insulin, they're still there in the second and third milking. So, so it made our lab really question these abrupt transitions. And we did some studies and we showcased that immunoglobulin levels will be even higher if you feed, um, you know, colostrum even after the first day of life. So that's probably has something to do with conserving some of the immunoglobulins within circulation. Also, the gastrointestine uh, can develop a lot more if you do have this transition. You're providing more calories and different bioactives that will stimulate growth of this gut, which I think is a positive thing. So I think there's some benefits here. And we did some larger scale studies too here in Ontario. And we showcased that it actually improves uh, health as well. Uh, in, so I think that there are some benefits to considering this transition from, from a whole colostrum to a whole milk or a milk replacer. Now, uh, feeding colostrum replacer versus uh, maternal colostrum, there's a big debates out there in our industry about this concept. Uh, I think that first things first, we should look at feeding colostrum properly before debating whether colostrum replacer or maternal colostrum is better. I think it's also very farm specific too. And the cleanliness of the maternal colostrum is a big consideration there. So I think both can work. What I've noticed is that when it's not working with colostrum replacer, it's typically the mixing is not being done properly. And once that's refined, most of the problems uh, do go away. However, I think that you can achieve great results using both colostrum replacer as well as maternal colostrum. 
Now, is there a specific difference scientifically? I think there could be. Uh, it's just very difficult to study that because uh, you have to standardize everything. But I guess it would be interesting, but I don't think we're there yet. You know, going back to our, you know, your question about how much colostrum to feed, I think we're still debating that right now. And mm -hmm. I think those are more impactful compared to the type of colostrum that you're feeding. Okay, great. That's very, very interesting, Mike. Uh, so before we stop talking about colostrum, I have uh, just one more question. So we know uh, that there is an important connection between the pregnant cow in the prepartum and the subsequent production of colostrum by these cows after calving. So mm -hmm. what are the factors related to prepartum cows that farmers should be paying attention to uh, thinking about the colostrum that this cow is going to produce after calving. Yeah, there's definitely a seasonality response to colostrum synthesis where it's typically, you know, lower at different times of the season. Uh, there's not much you can do to control that, though. However, I would look into the diets and what we found is the most responsive um, part of the diet would be energy. So I think typically in the dairy industry over the last 20, 30 years, we've been overfeeding energy during the dry cow period. And what's been shown in several studies, including some studies that we have done in other studies at Cornell University, is that if you overfeed energy in the late gestation, you will have lower quality colostrum. And in some cases, less colostrum. What I mean by lower quality, I mean the IgG concentration will be lower. So I, I think when it's all said and done, when you look at nutrient um, requirements, I would be looking at energy if you're having problems with uh, clostrogenesis or the total volumes and quality of colostrum that you're producing on farm. Now, there's been other studies looking at protein. Not a lot of significance there. Uh, not to say maybe energy and protein in combination could have an effect, but isolating protein, it looks like there's not a lot going on there, at least with typical diets that you would see in our industry. But it is a mystery to be very frank with you, Glarmy, about clostrogenesis. We're still actually scientifically debating the, you know, even what it means and when it starts. So some people think it starts a week before parturition. Others think that it starts 28 days before parturition. So we're actually doing a study right now at our Allura research station where we're stripping out uh, the quarters of cows at different periods during the dry cow. And we're, we're trying to figure out when clostrogenesis occurs. And uh, we're really debating what is this definition of clostrogenesis. Some people think it's when the concentration of immunoglobulins within the alveoli of the cow's udder is greater than circulation. That's when it happens. But we don't know when that happens. Uh, so, so lots of fun stuff to do that will keep my students incredibly busy uh, over the next year. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Keeping, keeping oh. them out of trouble is important, Glarmy. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. Looking forward to these results as well, Mike. Um, all right, so let's turn to our next topic, which is crossbred calves. So we know that beef on dairy is a very hot topic. Uh, in the dairy industry, and Mike, could you give us uh, could you give us an overview uh, of this topic, beef and dairy? Sure, I'd love to. So we've started to use sex semen 
the last five to 10 years it's taken off in the dairy industry. Almost every single prime Paris cow in progressive herds is receiving some sex semen right now. Uh, and it's being used on multiple lactations as well, but this created a surplus of heifers. And, you know, we don't need so many heifers here. Uh, we have a quota system. So this kind of caused uh, some issues, but it was quickly replaceable. Why don't we use beef bulls? In Angus and limousine is commonly being used in our industry here in Canada, predominantly Angus though. And we can actually sell some of these surplus calves for a lot more money. In fact, I was at an auction last week here in Ontario and calves that were crossbred one week old were bringing $800. That's a record. That's oh. a that's a record, folks. We've never achieved yeah. that kind of value in a calf ever. In some cases, we couldn't even sell them. Jersey calves, we couldn't we can't sell them. So this is incredible that you create a value proposition for a calf that in the past didn't really receive a lot of attention or didn't have a, because it didn't have that value. So I think that this is a great opportunity to farmers to increase some revenue by selling uh, calves that could be certified Angus, really, if they're 50% Angus and they're black, they could be certified Angus and allows dairy farmers, let's say we're not producing more milk, we can't expand our quota, base, we can actually rear animals uh, potentially in the future. And you don't see that very often when you're going from birth all the way to the feedlot on dairy farms. The facilities are a big constraint for that. So you have to make sure that you have great facilities. But at least it allows that opportunity, I think, to capture more value. But predominantly, they're going to larger uh, farms and, and being raised there. And, and uh, I think there's so many feedlots to, that require more animals, especially with the price of beef this year, that uh, this demand, I think, can be fulfilled. And there's a lot of these crossbreds in Canada. There's close to 300,000 of them being born this year. So it's it's going to take a significant amount of that feedlot will be coming from dairy farms in the future. So it's an exciting time. And I think there's lots of ways that we can intervene in early life to affect the end product. Uh, unlike the the native beef animal, which is out on pasture with their dam, not a lot of opportunity to intervene nutritionally. But now with a dairy beef animal, I think those opportunities are quite enormous. And I, I'd like to point out that there's a huge carbon footprint advantage here. Now, a lot of the, not nothing against the beef industry, it's really, really critical. But there is this advantage that if dairy animals do produce a beef animal, there is a mile, there is an advantage from a carbon uh, footprint standpoint that we should acknowledge because we don't have the cow-calf herd involved. So I'm excited by this project. It's in collaboration with professors uh, here at the University of Guelph in Daria Guelph. Uh, it's a, my co-investigator is Dr. Dave Renault for that project. Our private partners are Trow Nutrition, CMEX, Dairy Farmers of Ontario, other milk boards like BCDA as well as Alberta Milk are involved. Really happy to have Beef Farmers of Ontario involved. Same with the Veal Farmers of Ontario. So we're really excited by this project. And uh, we just received the grant this year in 2023. So we look forward to five more years of filling up our brand new feedlot at the University of Guelph with these crossbreds uh, so that we can do more studies with them. 
But the focus of our research in this area is how does early life management and nutrition impact these animals later on in life? And I don't think a lot of people are looking at that. Uh, typically, when you look at Holstein versus dairy beef or dairy beef versus, um, you know, a native beef, nothing is really known about those animals before they go to the feedlot. And it's typically feedlot comparisons. Now, we want to do our best to find ways to rear the that they perform really well in feedlots and they don't have a lot of liver abscesses and things of that nature that can be detrimental to the production system. So we're excited. We just started, but we have five more years, hopefully more after this. So uh, we'll be looking for tons of students uh, for those people listening and that are students at the University of Guelph. So and we're looking forward to generating a lot of useful data for the industry as well. Great, yeah, there you go. So yeah, beef on dairy, a very important important topic is related to profitability and sustainability of the, of the uh, animal industry. Um, and you just started a whole branch about this project. So one thing, Mike, that I, I would like to, to discuss with you is we just talked about the importance of the colostrum, right? However, um, I understand that there are some problems uh, current problems with the management of surplus calves and colostrum of these these young animals is is that right? Yeah. So in the past, I believe surplus calves have been typically neglected with respect to the amount of colostrum they're receiving, as well as the amount of milk that they're they're receiving, compared to their herd counterparts, being the replacement animals. Now this has changed a lot. I've noticed on farms, in particular in Canada. And it's great that people are becoming a lot more aware of this large animal welfare issue that we have when we're not providing uh, the essential nutrients to these animals. But also there's the purchasers that I think are doing a great job now by wanting larger calves. Uh, some, some purchasers of young calves, they want them at a set body weight because this has been associated with future performance. Uh, they also, some of them are testing and looking at serum IgG levels and paying a premium for higher levels or ranging with that farmer, I want you to feed this amount of colostrum and this amount of milk before I pick them up. So this combination, this communication between the dairy farmer and the person purchasing, I think is becoming really critical and is evolving. And this is making us, you know, invest more time and also more money into this calf that's uh, starting out at the dairy farm. So I'm excited to see that. And also now that there's more value with what I was saying, like calves bringing over $500 now, this is a record time uh, as we speak for the price of, of crossbred calves being born on dairy farms. So it's exciting to see more value in this calf and this calf being treated better, so. Right, yeah, that's very interesting, Mike. Thank you very much. Um, so before we finish this section, uh, I would like to talk a little bit more about beef sires. So considering that farmers have been using it a lot, what do we know, what do we know or, or what we sh should we know about beef sires and the relationship of the sire and calf's performance? Yeah, I, I think this is 
continually evolving and we're really excited that the first project within our grant is to evaluate some of these new beef sires and come up with genetic markers. I think that's what we need to do. But in order to do that, we need to follow these animals, look at their health, their growth, also their feedlot performance and carcass characteristics. So what we know right now is there's lots of diversity within these crossbreds. Now that's probably becoming, you know, just because of the hybrid vigor, but we know that there's some that have great prime ribs and some that don't have good prime ribs. So I think as we start genetically selecting, we'll be able to take care of some of the carcass issues. Uh, but I think what's initially evolved is that farmers were using beef sires as a tool to just get their animals pregnant. They used calving yeast sires. So what resulted from them were small calves. We don't want a small calf born. Uh, that calf will typically not gain as well through their life and not perform that well, most likely in a feedlot. So this has been a big change. I've noticed even the uh, farms that I'm working with, they had Angus crossbreds coming out at 35 kg, but now they're actually closer to 50 now because they realize, hey, we want big calves. We don't want really small calves uh, just for calving ease purposes. We actually wanna make sure that our calves will go on and do really well later on in life. So I, I've noticed that transition to getting away from just selecting for calving ease, which I think is not a good way to go. I think we need to integrate more with the beef industry and produce a product that's gonna be of tremendous value for them as well. But I do think there's so many advantages, Galerme, to this. Um, you know. In AI, we're doing AI all the time in dairy. In beef, it doesn't happen, okay? It's like 10, 20%. Uh, so this is a huge advantage to change the genetics really rapidly. And with the dairy industry, we know how to measure things incredibly well. And we have really great targets. So I think that we can quickly evolve this through time and find the sires that work really well, but we need to do the base research first and find these markers uh, for developing healthy animals that will produce really good meat in the abattoir and be very efficient and healthy during the feedlot. Yes, okay, Mike, yeah, very interesting. Again, looking forward to this results. This, this, this research grant of you is really interesting. So uh, Mike, the next, the next topic is winning strategies. And here's my first question. Does this change according to the milk feeding plan of the, that the farmer is using? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're feeding more milk, uh, you have to weed animals differently. So I think what happened in a lot of cases when farmers were experimenting with feeding more milk is that their weeding strategy wasn't satisfactory and it backfired. So all the gain that you receive through feeding higher milk pre-weaning would go away uh, really quickly if you have abrupt or um, you know insufficient weaning strategies or your step down is not long enough so if you're feeding more milk i think you should be feeding uh, weaning later in life definitely our research is telling us after eight weeks of life is really essential if you're feeding higher qualities of quantities of milk you should also have a weaning strategy that spans at least two weeks too and i think a more gradual weaning strategy rather than just one step is is a better way to look at it. And also, I, I think we not we talk a lot about high low milk, but I think we should also be considering the energy in the post weaning diet as well. I think sometimes we 
overestimate how much forage a calf can consume and we don't deliver as much concentrate. They, they really should be on ad libitum concentrate diets uh, for about a month post weaning at least. Uh, and that's not being done on a lot of farms. I think we're overestimating how much forage this calf is really consuming and we're under delivering some of the energy from the concentrate. So I think those are some of the main points, but it's been an exciting uh, field. This is where a lot of our calf research started looking at weaning age and step down protocols. And now we've been not just looking at how high low milk will impact uh, the weaning strategy, but also how milk composition can also impact and also starter composition, how that can impact the weaning strategy as well. So it's very preliminary our work there, but I, I think that we should be feeding animals on a more individual basis uh, in the future. And I think you'll see that in the coming decades. Okay, yeah, very interesting, Mike. And uh, this idea of gradual gradual weaning, it's, it, it's, it's very interesting as well. So we, we just talked about crossbred calves. And now I was wondering if there is any difference in weaning strategies for Holstein or crossbred calves? Yeah, I think, you know, right now I would probably treat the crossbred calf very similar to the principles that we learned from replacement dairy heifers. So at this point, I would still use the same strategies that we're discussing. Now, are there differences? There most likely are, and hopefully through this grant over the next five years, we'll figure out some of those. But there's a big difference that we need to acknowledge from native beef compared to this crossbred calf. You know, crossbred calf weaned around two months of age, sometimes even earlier, compared to the native beef calf that's weaned at six to eight months of age. The diet is very different. You're going to have more concentrate early in life compared to a forage and milk and maybe a creep feed sometimes. So there's big differences here. Uh, most likely the feeding protocols will adapt and there's probably some some changes that we can make but for now i think i would be treating this crossbred calf very similar to a replacement animal in the way that it's uh, raised at least until that six month mark before it would uh, consider going into a feedlot okay mike great thank you very much um okay so before we finish this first episode uh i would like to hear a little bit more about your new research grant I mean, you, you already talked a little bit about it, but uh, I think it would be be nice if you could um, if we could discuss a little bit more about the research grant about the use of pro, uh, probiotic yeast. So, who are your partners uh, in this research? Yes. Yeah, so, even before I was an academic, I used to collaborate with Lollamond uh, when I was in private industry, and Lollamond uh, was initially established in Canada. Now they're owned by a company. Well, they're in France is where their headquarters, and they distribute probiotics for many different applications, one being animal nutrition. So we've worked with this one yeast product of Lalamin's Saccharomyces cerevisiae boulardii is the name. We've been working on that for about eight years, and we started with calf research. We noticed that it improved gastrointestinal health by reducing the incidence of diarrhea. It also increases certain molecules being produced by the gut like IgA that can be really great for this calf to decrease the incidence of diarrhea. So we were really intrigued by this one probiotic and 
actually six years ago, I started pitching ideas. Hey, let's do transition cow work. I guess even six years ago, I knew that eventually, although I've transitioned to calves being 80 to 90% of my program right now, I know eventually I'd like to do 50-50. So I kept on pitching this idea with Lalamond and also Alenco uh, Animal Health. They're also uh, major partners in, in addition to Dairy Farmers of Ontario and Alberta Milk. So it was great to have, you know, also milk boards in, involved with this. And we decided let's let's use this probiotic. Uh, it looks like it can affect gastrointestinal uh, health, in particular in the lower gut. What I mean by the lower gut is everything after the abomasum, so the small intestine and the large intestine. So we're doing this experiment because we want to see if this probiotic can decrease the incidence of leaky gut, which we think happens a lot in early lactation. So cows, every single cow suffers from inflammation. Now, I don't need to tell this to a person like Galermi. He's an expert in this area. Same with his supervisor, Dr. Eduardo Ribeiro. I don't say a lot of nice things about a doc, Dr. Ribeiro, but I will now. He's one of the, one of the best uh, dairy uh, researchers in this area. But we think that a lot of this inflammation is coming from this leaky gut. And we want to study, first of all, characterize leaky gut during transition but see how this probiotic can impact it as well and also the immune system of these cows during transition. So we're really excited. We're, we're about half, we're past halfway done that experiment. It's been an enormous team. Uh, my graduate students and postdocs have done a spectacular job and we'll be reporting uh, some of these results in early 2024. So we look forward to that. Uh, learning more about cows. This is one of our, fir our first transition cow study at the University of Guelph as a lab. So there's probably going to be several more uh, coming down the pipeline too. Well, that's great, Mike. Thank you very much. Yes, gut inflammation and permeability is a very uh, hot topic in dairy science, very, very new, new stuff. Um, and I have um, uh, a follow-up question here for you. So uh, what about the calves? Could probiotic yeast uh, be helpful for calves as well? Yes, definitely. In our research, when we're supplementing the probiotic to calves, it has been shown to reduce the uh, amount of diarrhea. Uh, we're thinking that it probably has something to do with more IgA being produced by the gut, but we really need to do more studies in that area. But also feeding the probiotic in late gestation to the cow we think can have an impact on the calf. So we did some studies with sheep actually, and it actually changed um, the, the, the lambs as well, their growth and the, uh, their ability to absorb immunoglobulins from colostrum. And it also affected colostrum quality as well. In particular, the carbohydrate fractions were different. So I, I think that actually the probiotic can impact the animal, not only when you're feeding it uh, you know, in milk, but also in also starters, but even the cow in late gestation, I think that can have an impact on the calf. So that's actually more uh, research that we're doing right now at the Allura Research Station to to figure out some of these mechanisms. Okay, that's great, Mike. Uh, I bet that everyone is pretty busy with this new product, but this is very interesting, and we are looking forward to the results. 
Um, Guilherme, I have one of the best group of students in the world. I'm convinced of this because uh, they work so hard. These experiments are so intense to do. And I just wanted to give a shout out for them uh, because they've been working so hard to generate this data, which is really 24 um, seven uh, type of study with a huge team. So kudos to my team. You know who you are and thank you. Very much. Nice, that's great. Well, so this is the end of the first episode of Dare to Guelph podcast. And I would like to thank you, Dr. Mike Steele for participating and sharing all this great information about KF nutrition and management. So thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, I want to thank you, Glarmy, for starting this podcast because Dare to Guelph, as you know, is really important for all of us. And uh, I think one of my frustrations is actually uh, we're doing such great work here at the University of Guelph. We're publishing more research compared to any other research institute in the world right now. And um, getting this knowledge out to our producers is in our in our industry stakeholders is so critical. And it's something that I'm so happy that people like you are doing this and our director, um, Stephen LeBlanc, is is uh, definitely initiating a lot of these activities. So I'm really happy that we're doing this, and I want to do this more. So it was uh, such a pleasure to do this, Guilherme, and I really appreciate your leadership in this. Okay, thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it as well. Uh, and for everyone that is listening to this podcast, uh, I would like to mention that our next episode, uh, actually our next our next guest will be Dr. David Kelton from the Department of Population Medicine of the University of Guelph. So keep connected with us. Um, and yeah, thank you very much for listening to this first uh, episode.